0: We just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come to study your word. And for each person that's here, we ask you to bless us. Let your spirit guide and lead us as we look at your deliverance of your people through the various judges and the various ways that you delivered your people. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Judges, chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them, even as, as many of the Israel had as had not known all the wars of Canaan, only that the generation of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least, such as before they knew nothing thereof, namely five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonites and the Hittites that dwelt on on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-hiram unto the entering into Hermoth, And they were to prove Israel by them to know whether they would hearken to the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So that's the paragraph. So We're going to stop there. Remember, last week we talked about, or actually the last two weeks, we talked about all the different nations that didn't get kicked out of the promised land. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Hittites, the Jebusites, uh, all these different people that they were supposed to get rid of. They were supposed to kill them completely. And remember, there was a phrase that kept getting repeated. And this nation lived among them and paid tribute. Okay, They made them pay taxes, basically, to continue living there and made them into slaves. And you don't make a people slaves without having a repercussion at some point down the road. Slaves will revolt. <laughs> from the Egyptians. They're no they didn't learn, slavery they, didn't learn they didn't learn anything from the Egyptians they didn't learn anything many of history and they left the people there and they subjugated them and the people were not going to stay subjugated you know we don't people don't like to be under the thumb of somebody else and it just doesn't stay that way and so here it says the Lord left these people and he says this is only the generations of the children of Israel might know to teach them war at the least such as they before knew nothing. So he says, I'm, you've got these people, you're going to learn how to defend yourselves. And he, remember, they spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to fight. Okay? They, they had to fight all the time in the wilderness. They crossed into the, the promised land and they spent seven years fighting and God gave them victory in all their battles Except for AI, which they, they weren't supposed to fight because God didn't say go fight, but for seven years they they won every single battle they went to, except for that one little battle, and God said. And many times, if you remember the stories, God sent hailstones down, and it said the hail killed more people than the than they did, and they would be chasing them for for a 24-hour period and and winning the battle when they finally caught up with them. There were miraculous events that that they had and yet when it really came down to it they never finished the job they never you know finished getting rid of the enemy and we've t- talked about the last couple of weeks how we as Christians do that in our own lives so often we never finish crucifying the flesh we never cru- finish getting rid of the enemy we make peace with the enemy and try to put it under control and our flesh does not get put under control and God uses this to judge his people. And then he says specifically, namely the five lords of the Philistine and all the Canaanites and all the Sidons and the Hittites that dwelt from Lebanon. You know, so he gives some very specific people that are going to cause them trouble. And this is when you leave an enemy around, there will be trouble. Even if you beat the enemy into submission, because Remember, we've talked about the book of Judges is not a short time period. And we're gonna see that a little bit here. We're gonna we're gonna cover, I think it was sixty years just in this one chapter, (laughs) if I were just off the top of my head, and we'll look at it a little closer. But there's a long period of time in each of these chapters, and what ends up happening is the people of Israel sin, they get put into captivity, they get tired of being in captivity. (laughs) or subjugated, and they repent and call out, well, at least call out to God. I don't know how much repenting they do. But they call out to God for help. God sends a judge to them to lead them. He delivers them. They do well during the life of the judge, and then they go back into the cycle of sinning again. And we're gonna see this over and over again. And they do well during the period of the judge's alive. And uh, <coughs> but God says, I left these people and in verse 4, he says, and they are to prove Israel by them. And that literally means to assay. And, to an ass, and if you know the word assay, you know, the, the miners would bring in their, their gold or silver and it would be checked for how pure it was. And they would put the chemicals on it and all of that stuff. And it had to react a certain way to the chemicals. And the way that it reacted told, it, told them how pure it was. And it was saying... These people were to prove whether Israel was going to follow God or not, to to prove their life, to prove what they're going to do. The same thing that happens when we go through tests and trials. Those tests or trials are to prove or to assay the value of our spiritual walk because God's saying, do you really believe? Are you going to pay attention? Are you going to listen? Or is it just... Hypocrisy. You say one thing and do another. And all of us have some layer areas in our life that, that we're hypocritical where we say I'm going to follow God and then we violate what he says. Sometimes lots of areas in our life. But, you know, we all have this area, problem because all of us have problems in our life. And the good news is God keeps showing them to us. <laughs> or the bad news, whichever it might be. Uh, just when you think you've got it all together, God shows you a whole bunch of other problems that you have to deal out of your life, and He's going to keep doing this. Why? Because He is sanctifying us, and He's going to show us. You don't, he's going to show us that we never have it all together. We can never get self-righteous against anybody else, because we really, truly look at ourselves. We have nothing to be righteous about. Uh, well, not, not from, but you know, God's purpose is to not hide, not let us hide anything from ourselves. Okay, God knows our decisions. God knows what we're going to do. God knows how we think. His, he comes in and he goes, I want you to know what the truth is. Because human beings have a real great capacity to lie to ourselves. Okay, how many times have you gone through something and you... Blame everybody else for your problems, and then you kind of get back and God gets hold of you and you look back and say, oh, uh, I'm the one that's the problem. There's lots of leaders, especially, let's say, pastors. There's a lot of pastors who go to a church, end up with lots of problems, say, okay, this church is just too much trouble. Go to another church, do well for about a year or two, and end up having the same problems that they had at the previous church and say, well, this church is a bunch of problem, problem people too. And they go to another church mm-hmm. and end up with the same problems. Well, it, hopefully it doesn't take them too long to realize mm-hmm. they're the problem. We need to all be that way where we look at it and say, when we're in the middle of the problems, we need to be looking and saying, God, am I the cause of my problems? And I've seen it not just pastors. I've seen it in businesses. I've seen it all over the place where people are the worst problem they have is themselves. And you have to be able to look at yourself and say, God, what is needing to be changed? It really is something. When we're in the middle of a problem, the first thing we need to be able to look at is to say, God, am I the problem? Am I the problem? Kind of goes to where I say, you know, do I deserve what's coming my way? But the next step would be, God, am I causing some of these problems? Is the way I treat people coming back to me in these problems, and we need to be able to do that because so, easy, so many times we'll look at ourselves and say, well, I'm, you know, we may not actually say it, but in the back of our mind we'll go, I'm perfect, nobody, nobody can have problems with me. You know, I'm not the cause of, I'm not the cause of the, these issues, they are. You know, and we've got to be careful because, you know, we, we laugh about that, but isn't that really what's going on when we're trying to blame everybody else? We're really saying, I'm so good and so perfect, why can they have problems with me? It's all, you know, if I'm having problems, they're bringing them out of me. And we have to understand that if they're bringing them out of me, that's the test that I'm failing, that God's asking me to pass. I've got to learn to not react to them and let God crucify my flesh. And, you know, we've said it several times over this last week, you know, most of the time we get in this attitude of I have got to win the discussion, the argument, the debate, and most issues are not worth fighting over. And even if you're right, it's not worth losing a friend over just to be right or lose a, lose a member of the church just because you've got to be right in your, in your attitude or your judgment of whatever it is. You know, one of the things I used to say all the time to people, especially people raising children is, Pick your battles with your kids. And we need to be careful of what is it that we say is so important that we plant our flag and we're going to win that battle. And I've shared with you that as far as Christianity is concerned, there's very few things that I'm going to plant a flag and say there's an absolute I'm going to win. One is that the Bible is God's word. And it's absolutely true. The other one is that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God and the only way to heaven and that he died for all my sins. Beyond that, there's not a whole lot that I have to win to, uh, in a conversation. Now, you all know I'm very opinionated, and I have, I have strong beliefs, but, and I will teach them, and I will defend them, but if somebody plants their flag in opposition to me, it's like, okay, you can, you know, my attitude is you can, you can be wrong. <laughs> now, I realize even when I say that, I might be the one that's wrong, but my attitude is always been that people have the right to be wrong, and if I'm wrong, God's going to teach me. And, you know, we need to be very careful of this. There's so much that happens in churches and in families where people will fight tooth and nail to be right. You are going to accept that I am right. And there's certain things that just aren't worth arguing about. And we need to be able to look back and say, is this something that I want to sit to be? Am I willing to hurt people's feelings because this is so important that I have to win it? And, and this is what I say, if, you're, if we're talking about the Bible being God's word and his only word, I'm going to fight tooth and nail on that one because this one is, everything is based on this. If you ultimately don't want to agree, then that's up to you. But I am going to fight harder on that, and I'm going to fight harder that Jesus is the one and only son of God and the, the savior of, of all of us that he died and res- resurrected. Yeah. Uh, how the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us, how we need to pray, all these other things are pretty small. I have very strong opinions on creationism. I can't understand how anybody can be a Christian and not and not you know not accept creationism. But it's not the end of the world if they don't, because that's between them and God, and it's not a salvation issue. I I don't know why Jesus would have to come if man hadn't sinned in the, from because of creation. But that's a whole other argument involved on that. And again, it doesn't. it, it isn't that you have strong opinions and you don't and you're not going to voice your opinions, you voice them. And if they're going to take a real strong life or death issue on something that is really not that, you know, salvation long-term issue, then they're probably not worth arguing. And each one of us are going to have ours. And Maybe there's something you think are really important. That's fine. That As long as you realize that you're making that decision strong enough that it may separate friends or whatever, you can keep in mind. I just want to keep my list of things that are that, that important very small, because there's very few things that are life and death issues that are, you know, that if you don't believe this, you're, you're, you're going to go to hell. You know, that's why I say the Bible and Jesus are about as far as I'm going to go. You don't believe those two, then you're headed to hell, and that's a big issue with me. The rest of it, I think they're very serious. I think there are very serious consequences for not believing some of it, but they're up to the individual. So this was; these people were there to prove Israel. Were they going to follow, follow or not? All right, let's read verse 5. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Pezzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be wives, and they gave their daughters to their sons and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served Baalim and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer of the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Oth- Othniel, the son of Kidaz. Caleb's younger brother. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Shushan Rishathuim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. And his hand prevailed against Shushan Rishathuim. (laughs) And the the land had rest 40 years, and Othniel, the son of Kandaz, died. All right. So we see here the first problem that Israel has that they dwelt among all these foreigners and then verse 6 was the real kicker. They took their daughters as wives and gave their daughters to them as for wives and they forgot God. This is so important for us to understand. God says do not be unequally yoked in the New Testament. God's biggest problem is not what nationality somebody is, what color they are. Uh, Nothing is is going to bother God. But if you are in a relationship with a non-Christian, you've got a problem. And the reason there's a problem is because most often that non-Christian pulls the Christian away from the faith almost every single time. Now, there are the exceptions, and everybody will make a big big deal of, you know, I got married to this person, and they got saved. Well, yeah, you're one out of a, out of a hundred. <laughs> Most of the time, you see it work exactly the opposite way. My, my second son doesn't go to church very often, and his, his girl, or wife, <laughs> you know, girlfriend, when I asked him if he should be dating her, and he goes, his famous last words, it's not like we're going to get married. Mm. Uh, several years later, they're getting married. She's a wonderful girl. She's a l- very lovely girl, very nice girl. She just likes to. Lesser. She just likes to do everything but go to church. <laughs> and this happens over and over and over again. We're going to see Israel do it all the time. Remember what got him in trouble in the wilderness when when. Uh, Balaam told Balak, you know, you want to to get them in trouble with their God? Go send the women in and and entice them away from their God. And they did, and they got enticed away from their God. Here we see the same thing. They didn't learn their lesson. The the Israelites are as as thick-headed as we are usually. We don't like to learn our lessons in most cases. This is the same problem that took Solomon away from God. Remember, Solomon in a dream, as he first becomes king, God says, what? I'll give you anything you want. And he asks for wisdom. And God says, Well, because you didn't ask for the lives of your enemies and long life and, and wealth and all these other things, I'm going to give you wisdom and all these other things. And then he started making political marriages and had a bigger problem than his dad did. His dad, David, had, you know, gathered up a whole bunch of wives, and Solomon had gathered just a few wives. Uh, if you remember, 1,000 wives and concubines—just you know, a few. Solomon got his dad's desire in in spades. I mean, David, I think, only had like 10 wives, but uh, but uh, Solomon, pretty much, if he saw a girl he wanted, he took her. So it was, and it didn't matter what her religion was. And eventually, he built temples for their for their gods because they complained that they need, you know, that they didn't have God, you know, temple to worship their gods in. And you know how the conversation goes. You know, well, honey, you always go to your temple. You've never come to my temple. I think you really should come to my temple at least once. Well, that was the first start. And he did build them their temples. None of them would have been, you, you've never been to this temple you built for me. Uh, and, they, and he was led astray by his wives. And eventually came back, you know, and then wrote to Ecclesiastes that, that everything is vanity. All right, verse 7. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot their God. They forgot God. you know, That's kind of hard to do when you've had all these blessings from God, is to totally forget him. And we're told in, in Hebrews, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We need each other in the church. We need each other. Can I be a Lone Ranger Christian? Theoretically, yes. Will you be? I've never seen it. I've never seen an individual try to be a Christian all on their own without going to church. They will drift away from God. It's just, and the picture of it is very clear. You know, if you have wood in the fire, you're glowing embers in the fire, and you take the, the white-hot, red-glowing ember, and you take it out of the fire and put it on the rocks on the side of the fire, it does not take long for that very strong ember to go out. And this is what will happen to somebody who is trying to be a Christian all on their own. You know, we need one another. We need to be taught. We need the encouragement from one another. And as we're told in Ecclesiastes, in one falls, you need somebody else there to help pick you up because it is much better Now, if you're by necessity having to be by yourself, God will be your strength, okay? He'll be your strength, but even then, it is still better to have somebody else with you to give you that encouragement. Because how often have you been, you know, especially if you're a homebody, you don't like getting out amongst people, how easy is it to get yourself wrapped up in your own problems and not have anybody else just you start having a pity party with yourself? And there's no voice out there to get you out of your pity party because you're agreeing with yourself. And there's no contradictory voice coming in. There's no encouragement to stand up and go out. Very important that we go. And this is they forgot God because they were not following him. There's no test to know whether you're okay in the first place, and then we end up lying to ourselves and saying, I'm okay. Because I am because i'm okay there's no i have no test i have i have no problems and you get out amongst people and you know what people are annoying most of the time and especially if you're not following god or looking at god people are annoying even those that you love can be very annoying at times at times because we rub up against well we rub, we rub up against each other the scriptures tell us that Iron siphons iron, and when we come next to each other, we rub each other, we rub each other the wrong way. Those little burrs on the, on the, on the iron barbs kind of, you know, prick people, and, and you're not even doing it on purpose. It's just things happen, and, they're, and their little barbs on their iron prick you, and, and we have a response. How am I going to respond to these people? Am I going to be godly, or am I going to act in the flesh? And your flesh isn't going to be bothered too much when you're by yourself. <laughs> Most of our flesh can get along with our own flesh <laughs> as long as nobody is out there to contradict us. Now, if you're really following God, being alone can be miserable because sometimes God will get in there and say, I still want your flesh knocked out even though you're alone. That's when we start trying to ignore God. <laughs> they forgot God, and then it says, and they served Baalim, which is the plural, plural of Baal, which is the many gods of the Canaanites. And then they, and it says, and the groves. Who remembers what the groves are? We've talked about them several times. What are the groves? Which god are they worshiping on the groves? The female Asteroth, the female fertility goddess. So when you read, I just wanna bring this up. When, you, when we read groves, it's not just talking about any, any grove of trees, okay? When you're reading this, that they, and, they, and, and the groves, or they didn't cut down the groves, they're talking about Ashdorah worship, uh, which is the fertility goddess of that area. I just want to keep bringing this up. I'm gonna we're gonna hammer these things in so that as you're reading the old, the, the old Testament and you read these things, you know, because if you're not, you're going well. What's wrong? They, they 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 can't have a grove of apple trees. That's not what it's referring to. You've got the totem in the center, which is dead. 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 It's just dead. carved. Around that, you planted a ring of trees called the grove, which technically gave you some privacy to worship the Astoroth. You're looking for privacy with another 50 or 100 people inside the grove, uh, so it doesn't uh, make much sense, but it created, a, it created a barrier between the rest of the world. If you're not worshiping the goddess, you weren't allowed to see. worship worshiped Astoroth, Astoroth with an orgy. You know, same thing as the Athena. Oh, I understand that. Okay. To Diane. And, Di- and Diane and and Diane, the fertility goddesses are always worshipped through, through uh, sex. All right. So the king of Mesopotamia was sent in to conquer them and put them into tribute. So what they had done to these other nations that they didn't kick kick out, is being done to them, and the king from Mesopotamia, which is a pretty pretty good uh, distance away from the promised land, because that's up around the Euphrates, comes and conquers them, and rules them for eight years. Now, this is actually one of the short times before they finally get tired of not listening to God. It's just eight years that they're under, under, under rule. And it says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, for the children of Israel, even Othniel, the son of Kizad, Caleb's younger brother. So we're talking about the great, uh, the nephew (laughs) to Caleb. So we're not that far from Joshua's reign for the people. And remember it said Joshua died and for the rest of that generation, they followed God. And we see right here. They're not that far away. <laughs> you know, Joshua, uh, uh, Caleb's nephew is the one who's going to be the deliverer <laughs> of these people. And so he is raised up to deliver them. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered the king of Mesopotamia to him. I'm going to say Mesopotamia because I like that name easier than, than the other guys. <laughs> I was going to name. and ask you, what that <laughs> name? <mean>? <laughs> 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 yeah. And the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kinaz, Ke- Ke- died. And this is going to be the pattern we're going to see. A judge comes in, delivers the people of Israel, and they have peace for the rest of that judge's life. Uh, you know, and notice here, there's no mention that Israel has repented. Okay, there's no mention of repentance here. Now there is a small amount of of repentance in that they recognize that they haven't been following God and they call out to the right God finally. So, but there's no real saying here that they repented. It just says they called out to God and he delivered them. And you know, God will oftentimes deliver and help his children if all we do is call to him. He doesn't stand there and say, I expect you to repent and get right to be delivered. Now, if we're calling to him, hopefully we've also repented. But how many times have you asked God's help and he's helped you just because of his by his gracious mercy without you truly repenting and giving up what it is that has caused you to need his help? You know, it happens a lot to us. How does that line of scripture fit in with that? Word? The prayer of a righteous man who much. It has nothing to do with this statement, but, but a righteous person who prays, in, according to James, gets his prayers answered. And the righteous can expect their prayers to be answered because they're praying in the name of God and for what God desires. And this is, and again, remember, name. All of the, the reputation that the name stands for. Okay, if I'm asking God, God, I need a million dollars because I want to have a big mansion and be be well liked by everybody. That's and I put Jesus' name in there, you know. God, give me a million dollars so I can have all these things to spend on myself in Jesus' name. Number one, I'm not praying in Jesus' name, even though I've tacked His name on it, and I'm not going to probably get that prayer answered because it's not going to honor God. Now, if I go to God and go, God, we have this vision. We want to we want to have this great big hotel and minister to to the homeless and, and and the sick, and we've got a real vision that God's given us, and we go and we just pray this in Jesus' name, we probably would get that prayer answered, as long as it was a true vision that we have. And, and, and that is exactly how we plan to spend the money. We look at somebody like George Mueller, spending a fortune of money in his day to take care of these uh, orphans, and God providing for them all the time because he was taking care of the orphans yeah, he, didn't have any money. he didn't keep any money and he didn't and he was meticulous about where that money if he had money given to the orphans it went to the orphans if he had money given to missionaries it went to the missionaries if it went to for the books that he that he, that he made or bought it went to the books and it didn't matter if he had thousand pounds in one category and needed a thousand pounds in another area he would never switch that money around, he was meticulous about this money was given for this purpose and he would not even borrow the money to pay it back later on. He would let, he would be willing to let the one suffer (laughs) rather than do that. Trusting in God and that was his, that was his, that was his integrity involved. We need to, when we're praying, have integrity before God and say, God, I want this because I want it to to edify and build you up. I want you to be lifted up. And if we pray things that we truly want to see God lifted up, we'll see miraculous things happen if we're looking to see God lifted up. Most of our prayers as humans, though, God, I need this, I need that. Uh, that. I know I'm supposed to pray for you to be lifted up, but God, I need, I need. And if that's our prayers, we don't get a lot of those answered. You know, God will meet our needs. The problem with most of us in America especially is we don't know the difference between a need and a want. God, I only had two meals today. God, I need a third meal. You know, I need this meal, God, because I'm 80 pounds overweight and I just can't afford to miss a meal. And, you know, most of the world gets by on one good meal and one small meal a day. And then when I talk a meal, we're usually talking rice <laughs> as their meal. And most Americans, if all we had is a cup of rice, would be in pure, sheer panic that I'm starving to death, God. You haven't met my needs. We need to be very careful that we start looking and saying, God, what is a need? What is a want? And beyond that, how are you being lifted up? How is God being lifted up? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And yet so many times we want to lift ourselves up. It's not God. And, you know, if most of your prayers are for God, you might just get some of your needs and wants taken care of on the side. Because he is very generous with us. As his children, he's very generous with us. But we need to be looking at how are you being lifted up, God? How are you being blessed? And then as long as our focus is on him, he says, oh, I kind of like that. Here, have, have a little more for yourself as well. All right. We're going to read a long portion of this one because this is a another story. Verse 12: The children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strength, strengthened Agalon, the king of Moab, against Israel because he had done evil, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and the Amalek, and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of Palm Trees. Does anybody know what the city of palm trees is? Jericho. So the children of Israel served Aeglon the king of Moab 18 years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, a man left handed. And by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Aeglon the king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit in length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh, and he brought the present to Eglon, king of Moab, and Eglon was very was a very fat man. And when he had made an end to the offering of the present, he sent away the people that bear the present, and he and he himself turned again from the, from the queries and which were by Gilgal, and said, I have a secret errand unto you, O king, who said, Keep silent. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him as he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto you. And he rose out of his seat. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade, so that it could not be withdrawn. Could not withdraw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. And Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone, the servants came, and when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked, they said, "Surely he covers his feet in the summer chamber." And they tarried till they were ashamed and beheld, and behold. He opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore they took a key and opened them, and, and behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on, on the earth. And Ehud escaped as they tarried and passed among, beyond the queries and escaped into Seirath. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he be. And he before them, and he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your your hand. And they went down after him and and took the fords of Jordan toward Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew the Moabites at that time, about 10,000, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued in that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years." (laughs) So long story about Ehud, but I wanted to read the whole thing because there was really no break in this, in this story. All right, so the children of Israel are again sinning, and it, the thing we want to note is it doesn't tell us how long they sin before God judges them, and it never does. Anywhere in there, the, yeah, it tells us. But it does tell us that Eglon comes, and he puts them in capti- uh, subject, subjugation for eight years. Now, you kind of look at this, first time was eight years, this time it's 18 years before they finally get smart and call upon God. And we're going to see this happening, it gets, almost everyone is going to be a long period of time that they're in captivity or subjugation before they finally decide to call out to God because they're getting further and further away from God. And think about this, when you're following God and you fall into sin, Usually, we will repent real quick. Oh, man, God, I really messed up. The Spirit is there convicting us. But the longer you get away from that walk with God, the easier it is to sin without the conviction falling upon us. And here we're seeing an 18-year gap before they finally realize, uh, God, uh, maybe we should have come to you a little while ago. 18 years of wallowing around in their sin and being punished more than 18 years because he didn't, there was a punishment time as he walked away from God. But this happens to us, and we see it often. If you've ever walked away from God, you know how easy it can get to sin the longer you stay away from God and how hard it was at the beginning. God, I really know I should be in church. I really know I shouldn't be you know, taking this drink or taking this smoke or, or hanging out with these people. And the longer you do it, the easier it gets to do and the less you think about God. And that's what we're seeing here, 18 years. (laughs) And all of a sudden, they decide to cry out to God. And God raises Ehud, the son of Gerard the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, left-handedness is as rare in the Bible as it is in our day and age. And they make a big deal out of it at times. In this case, it's very important that he's a left-handed man. And we're going to look at that as we go on because that's how he gets the sword in in the first place, all right? Uh, Eglon is not just going to let anybody walk in armed. They probably do some kind of search. You know, we would call them pat-down searches. And a right-handed person draws the sword from their right, from the left side, so they're looking for indication of a sword on the left side of his being, and he's carrying it on the right side. So they're going to overlook the fact that he's armed. All right, Uh, because you know I've I've heard of different detectives, police officers, and some they can see a gun under a jacket. They see the they see whatever they're looking for. I don't know what I'm looking for. Would never see it, but they see the concealed weapons quite frequently, unless somebody's wearing totally baggy clothes. And this people would have been England's guard would have been trained on watch for these (laughs) weapons coming in, and they would naturally be looking for a sword on the left side because that's what the majority of the people did. And that's why it's important that he's a left-hander. And it says he made him a dagger with two edges, a cubit in length, 18-inch dagger. Now, that wow. to me, that's a sword. Okay. <laughs> that's a small sword as far as I'm concerned. pretty uh, tall. To, to wear an 18-inch dagger on his side, uh, you know, it's pretty much you know. For me, it would be about an 18 inch. So you you I never thought about that. Yeah. He he can't be a short man. No. Ehud could not be a short man. I never even thought about that. <laughs> because if he was too short, an 18 inch dagger would have been pretty very obvious. So yeah. And then walked it in. What yeah. Uh, 18 inch. Yeah. All right, and so they brought Egland a present, and I would say that this is more likely tribute. Okay, here's the king. King, we're giving you your honor. Here's your here's your gift. And in, I love the way that it says it. Egland was a very fat man. Uh, to be stuck with an 18-inch dagger the, the, and the and the handle. Or if the handle, even if it was the handle included in 18 inches, that's still uh, a pretty good sized person to be able to have that sword totally enveloped into his body. All right? Uh, He was not a small guy by any stretch of the imagination. And it says, after they'd made the offering, he, he sent away the people that bear the gift. And it says, he turned away again from him in verse 19 from the quarries. Now this particular word for quarry is where the idols were, all right? It's not, it's not a rock quarry, <laughs> all right? In the Hebrew, it literally means idols. And there would be this whole string of idols uh, out there. Paul talks about it on Mars Hill when he goes up and he says, I perceive that you all are a religious people. You've got a God to everybody, including this one here to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. Mm-hmm. Same thing here. He's leaving the palace and there's this whole grove of idols or row of idols. And he turns back from it. Uh, And I don't know if he had planned on killing him on this particular visit or not, but I think maybe when he walked past these idols, he's going, this guy is not following God. (laughs) He's not following God. It's time to deliver. And then he said, I have a secret errand for you, king. I have a secret message for you. And the king very foolishly sends all of his people away. I can't picture this happening, but it did. It did. You know, what trust he has or what arrogance he has. You know, all right, I've, I've got to hear this secret message. You know, my, my, my enemy, the one that is in subjection to me, well, they brought me this nice gift. Maybe, maybe they're going to be good. And he sends all the guard out. He sends the servants out. And it says that he's sitting in the summer parlor. And basically, this is a room designed to be cool. All right? It's a hot place. He's sitting in a place that's cooled. Most likely marble, just positioned right for the wind to to come in and keep it cool. Probably has some kind of fanning system all, all in place. But he's there, you know, well, the, 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 they're gone. And yeah, who knows what he had on it. You know, We think about that, but those things did exist in those places. They, they ran water and stuff and pumped water. I mean, we think of these people as being primitive and not having stuff. Some of their stuff was much more advanced than we ever think about. And he says, I, I have a, Ehud said in verse 20, I have a message from God for you. And he gets up and approaches Ehud. Reaches out with his left hand, grabs that, 18 inch weapon, <laughs> thrusts it into him and you got to think about how sharp this one is. It goes with no problem straight through his belly and it says the fat rolled over <laughs> <No>. the handle. <laughs> this is a fat guy. I mean this is, this is a big guy, probably not able to even get up and move very I mean yeah. you're not that big oh, without you now we're talking to somebody who's probably close, closing in on 400 pounds. You know, because that's how big you have to be to be able to have that happen. And then it says in here, it's kind of a strange one in, in King James. The dirt came out. Uh, if anybody's reading the newer versions of the Bible, it probably translates this correctly. The feces comes out. He stabs him, and he and he cuts the 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 lower the, the lower colon. And they're trying to keep one of the things they're trying to do is not make it sound as bad as it was. Yeah, he went in and he hit the lower colon, and out came everything from the lower colon, which would have been the entrails, would have been you know, all the garbage that the lower colon gathers up. Oftentimes, the Bible uses euphemisms in there to kind of make it not sound as the next one we're going to get to here is another euphemism. And they're trying to translate it in a way that doesn't necessarily gross everybody out and doesn't sound vile. All right, then Ehud he went forth from the porch, shut the doors of the parlor upon him, and locked them. I don't know how he got the keys. I don't know. It doesn't really tell us how he got a key to lock the door, but he locked the doors. The inside, Maybe, it, usually though they were bolted, so I don't know that he could have done it in that day. Yeah, you uh, he probably took a key from the from him, so... And when he had gone out, the servants came and and saw, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. And they said, surely he covers his feet in the summer chamber. Uh, This is another euphemism. They're saying, surely he's going to the bathroom. So he locked the door for privacy. He covered his feet. Same thing when David is in the cave with King Saul. It says something about him covering his feet, dropping down his, his uh, tunic, covering his feet, using the facilities, and lifting it back up. Okay, It's a very colorful way to say it, but basically they're saying, surely he's in there using the restroom. <laughs> yeah. he, he's going to the bathroom. That's what he locked the doors for. He doesn't want us in seeing him. And then it says they tarried till they were ashamed. Okay, they're like, uh, okay, how long does it take him to go? Basically, it's like uh, we can't really wait any longer. Does he need? Does he need help? Uh, you know, is he having some real problems? <laughs> uh, has, he, has he fallen and can't get back up? You know, they, this is his servants and this is really a serious thing for them. We're laughing about it. Yeah. But for them, it could be a death you know, there could be a death sentence for them if he actually couldn't get back up or has gotten hurt somehow or hasn't been able to take care of himself. Yeah. He could say when they finally do come in, off with their heads. Yeah. So they've waited as long as they dared and they opened it up and then they find him dead. He had escaped while well, they tarried and passed beyond the idols and escaped to Shira. As it came to pass, as, that he, as he came, he blew the trumpet in, in Mount Ephraim and basically called the people to battle. And he said, God has delivered us. God has delivered us from, this, from the enemy. Now, how much he told them at that time, I don't know. But basically saying, our enemy, the king, is dead. And that's going to cause some problems. Even if they wanted to put them back in subjection, They have to get his son in place, or whoever's gonna take his place, they have to get in place. There's gonna be a little bit of juggling on who's gonna be in charge and who's not gonna be in charge, uh, which is why many kings in the Bible and other places, when they went to war, they they picked the son who was going to be in charge and they made them co-regent just in case they died. They said, this is the son I pick. Now, they didn't always mean that son was going to become king, but the king had placed his stamp on that one, saying, "I die, he's king," and he would hoped his military would and royalty would follow their wishes. And so he took the of the Jordan, so the Moabites couldn't come in and attack it, and it did not let anybody cross the ford. In this wonderful statement, and then they then they went to battle and they killed about ten thousand Moabites. And then it says, all lusty, robust, stout. You know, these were not, these were not the wimps of the, of the Moabites. They killed the strong people of the Moabites. And it says, and men of valor. And there escaped not a man of that, of that came to them. That's God's victory, just as what they were used to when they first came into the Promised Land. God gave them victory, and here they, they were given the victory. And it says they were, and Moabite was subdued, and they under, and the, Israel had land, had rest for 80 years. Good, good chunk of peace. You know, they had peace until he died. And who knows how old he was when he when he started this? You know, somewhere between probably 20 or 30 at this point. I don't think he probably lived more than 110. But, and then just one last one seems all we want to finish this chapter. We're going to talk about a third judge. And after him was Shamgar the son of Anath, which slew the Philistines six hundred men with an ox goad, and he delivered Israel. And that's all we know about this judge. Oh, ox goad. That's the point, the pointed stick. Oopsie. To get them to move. Oh, okay. That's when Paul was said it's hard to kick against the pricks. Mm-hmm. The goad was what they pricked against. That's all we have for this judge. He, a judge. he he kills us, he kills six hundred Philistines and rules Israel. Right. And we don't even know how long he rules Israel for. He just uh, shows up and, <laughs> and is gone. We're going to close in prayer as we finish three judges in one night. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Thank you, Lord, for helping us understand, first off, Lord, that when we sin, there's a consequence, just as the children of Israel had consequences for their sins, and that when we lift up our voice and call to you, you will deliver, and you will give us peace while we, we abide under that deliverance. Help us to work in that area and obey. And we just thank you for this time of learning in your son's name, amen.